Good evening, Patriots. And it's Friday, January 20th. In the year 2023, we're heading into a nice weekend. On the East Coast, you've already entered into Saturday, which is really awesome. Hopefully, everybody will have a nice Saturday, a nice relaxing Saturday. Before we begin, take some time this weekend to enjoy yourself. Take out the guns. Go shoot something, seriously. And to improve your target practice, one of the things we have that will save you tons of money on ammo is iTarget Pro. You know how passionate I am about our Constitution and especially the Second Amendment, but just as passionate about being responsible and protecting my family. I discovered the perfect way to train with your firearm in the comfort of your own home and continue to improve your skills. It's called iTarget Pro, and this system is a game changer for me. All I did was download iTarget's proprietary app, load the laser bullet into my firearm, and start training. The system develops muscle memory, reaction speed, sight alignment, trigger control, and much more. Right now, save 10% plus get free shipping with the offer code BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, when you go to itargetpro.com. With the cost of ammo through the roof, this is the perfect solution for you. That's the letter I, targetpro.com, itargetpro.com. The offer code is BARDS, B-A-R-D-S. This is something you definitely need. itargetpro.com. It's awesome. Offer code is BARDS. So I'm going to kind of just change pace a little bit. I've been doing this for the last couple of nights to kind of bring in some other things into the topic. And and I think it's important because these are American historical events. And this person I'm going to talk about tonight is very near and dear to my heart. Um, matter of fact, in a huge honor, I was given this nickname when I was in Afghanistan in uh, twenty or 2006, the soldiers gave me this nickname, and it was Ernie Pyle. I don't know if you know who Ernie Pyle is, but Ernie Pyle is legendary. Ernie Pyle was a Pulitzer Prize-winning American journalist and war correspondent who is best known, I'm reading this right out of the Wikipedia piece here, which is a really good bio on him, who is best known for his stories about ordinary American soldiers during World War II. Pyle is also notable for the columns he wrote as a roving human interest reporter from 1935 through 1941 and for the Scripps Howard newspaper syndicate that earned him wide acclaim for his simple accounts of ordinary people across North America. When the United States entered World War II, he lent the same distinctive folk style of his human interest stories to his wartime reports from the European Theater, which he was in from 1942 to 1944, and the Pacific Theater in 1945. Pyle won the Pulitzer Prize in 1944 for the newspaper accounts of dogface infantry soldiers. Dogface, by the way, is a term that was used for the United States Army soldiers in the infantry in World War II. Pyle won the Pulitzer Prize in 1944, like I said, for the newspaper accounts of dog-faced infantry soldiers from a first-person perspective. He was killed by enemy fire in Lashima during the Battle of Okinawa. And that Lashima's crazy little place. It's um, like 20 kilometers around in circumference. It's a tiny little island. At the time of his death in 1945, Pyle was among the best-known American war correspondents. His syndicated column was published in 400 daily and 300 weekly newspapers nationwide. President Harry Truman said to, of Pyle, no man in this war has so well told the story of the American fighting man as American fighting men wanted it told. He deserves the gratitude of his countrymen. So when I was given the opportunity to go over to Afghanistan as the first embedded citizen journalist in the modern day program, which would be, I mean, that's obviously post-World War II. And the embed program actually officially, as we know the embed program today for journalists that began in 19, in the first Iraq war, which I think is 1991. So the entire concept of the program, we've had journalists on the battlefield for a long time. Journalists in Vietnam were given pretty much free reign to go anywhere they wanted. In World War II, they worked very closely with units like Ernie Pyle. They would be attached to units. 
in world in Vietnam War, they were just given free reign to go everywhere, and that ended up being quite a disaster. Uh, in in different ways, not everybody would agree because um, a lot of people feel that it's because of the journalists that they, we were able to stop the war in a very um, if in one of the most famous photos, if you've ever seen the assassination of the of the Vietnamese um, person, uh, he was a he, he was a Viet Cong. I'm sorry. And that that picture became legendary. Actually, he was, and it was an assassination of a Viet Cong by a Vietnamese general on the streets at point blank. And that they say that that one picture may have stopped the entire war. I tend to think that's a little overstated, but I think it makes the point. So the military retracted a lot from having journalists on the battlefield in part because of what happened in the Vietnam War. There was an enormous amount of leverage given to those who were on our soil trying to destabilize the United States. And I, while I am not a fan of the Vietnam War, let me be very clear, nonetheless, the actions of war were being used pretty maliciously to destabilize everything in the country, which is what we're still dealing with today. So it wasn't until 1991 that they began to readmit journalists back in the program. And they came up with a pretty good program initially. In the embed program, the idea was that the military would take over the expense of flying journalists from the United States, called CONUS, Continental United States, to OCONUS, other than the United States, other than CONUS, Continental United States, OCONUS locations. And that way that they wouldn't be tethered from the expenses of their news agencies. And the idea was in the embed program that they would have to commit to at least, I think the original time, I think it was at least three weeks so that they had to get an enduring story with the soldiers. And the idea was to improve coverage of what was going on there and give a more accurate detail of the war through the soldier's lens. Now, there's reasons that, we could talk about a lot of reasons, but there's a logic in that, in that in the coverage of war, especially the way this was, there was an ongoing war with the military and the media, it always has been. Because the media's objective is always to villainize the military and everything it does. And that's all part of their bigger plan as we're kind of seeing to kind of demoralize the United States. The military doesn't need to always be put as the villain, just to be more clear. The beauty of the embed program is it allows the journalist to embed directly into line units, meaning units that are on the ground, get to know the soldiers. And effectively, the motivation from that came from Ernie Pyle. Because what Ernie Pyle was masterful at was that he was, by his own choice and by being a, I guess, as they call him, a, a roaming human interest, human interest reporter, he, he capitalized on his interest in people to tell a story of war through the eyes of the soldier. It's literally, as they say, a first-person account. And that was my approach. And I did that both with video and writing. I think, my, as I recall the numbers of my first year, so 2006, June, until 2007, May, I published 130 blog stories. I published 30 video stories, and I think I did 20-some radio shows or radio stories. So it was a pretty good volume of work, plus there was a documentary film in two parts, one of which has been released, and the second one will eventually get done, hopefully this year or next year. So there was a lot of material that came out of that in that first year. And as happens, because you become very entrenched in a battlefield, you don't really know what you're following is back home. But the irony is that as I arrived in Afghanistan, in 2006, I was the only American journalist of any kind that was there representing the American view and working with American soldiers. Ernie Pyle ended up being in a similar situation. I mean, he was often the only voice that would give voice to the soldiers 
on the ground and what they were really going through. And so it became a very connected issue. And this is what I found as well as when you were telling the story of soldiers, it was connecting them from the battlefield to the home back in the United States. And this is something that journalism, in my opinion, this is rich journalism. This is the type of stories that we don't get these days. And it's unfortunate because so much of even now when we're supposed to be getting good journalists, um, we don't have good journalism, in my opinion. We have a lot of research going on that tries to link a lot of dots. But we don't have good human interest journalism going on. And that's we're not spending enough time getting to know each other and telling the stories that really count. We, we're, we're seeing individual stories, kind of the personal testimonies of people that are suffering and things like that, But especially with this injection. But we're not getting good development of human interest stories. And that's something I really prided myself in to get to know the people, tell the stories, get to know who they are. And as they got comfortable with me, then the camera became less, was no longer a burden. And they were happy to tell their stories on film. Pyle didn't have a film aspect. He just was a, he carried a typewriter. You can imagine that. And so he would type his stories and write his stories. So I'm going to read a little bit of one of his stories. And this is after D-Day Friday. It was published on Friday, June 16th, 1944. It's the second day of a three-day column that he did on D-Day. And I just want to kind of give you a flavor of the type of journalism that was once in this country, and it's pretty amazing. It's, it's titled Normandy Beachhead, June 16th, 1944. I took a walk along the historic coast of Normandy in the country of France. It was a lovely day for strolling along the seashore. Men were sleeping on the sand, some of them sleeping forever. Men were floating in the water, but they didn't know they were in the water, for they were dead. The water was full of squishy little jellyfish about the size of my hand. Millions of them. In the center of each of them had a green design exactly like a four-leaf clover. The good luck emblem, sure. Hell, hell yes. I walked for a mile and a half along the water's edge of our many mild invasion beach. You wanted to walk slowly, for the detail on the beach was infinite. The wreckage was vast and startling. The awful waste and destruction of war, even aside from the loss of human life, has always been one of its outstanding features to those who are in it. Anything and everything is expendable. And we did expend on our beachhead in Normandy during these first few hours. For a mile out the beach, for a mile out from the beach, there were scores of tanks and trucks and boats that you could no longer see. For they, they were at the bottom of the water, swamped by overloading or hit by shells or sunk by mines. Most of their crews were lost. You could see trucks tipped over and swamped. You could see partly sunken barges and the angled up corners of jeeps and some landing craft half submerged. And at low tide, you could still see these vicious six-pronged iron snares that helped snag and wreck them. On the beach itself, high and dry, were all kinds of wrecked vehicles. There were tanks that had only just made, just made the beach before being knocked out. There were jeeps that had been burned to a dull gray. There were big derricks on caterpillar treads that didn't quite make it. There were half-tracks carrying office equipment that had been made into a shambles by a single shell hit. Their incinerators still holding the useless equipage of smashed typewriters, telephones, and office files. There were LCTs turned completely upside down and lying on their backs, and how they got that way, I don't know. There were boats stacked on top of each other, their sides caved in, their suspension doors knocked off. In the shoreline museum of carnage, there were ab abandoned rolls of barbed wire and smashed bulldozers and big stacks of thrown away life belts and piles of shells still waiting to be moved. 
In the water floated empty life rafts and soldiers' packs and ration boxes and mysterious oranges. On the beach lay snarled rolls of telephone wire and big rolls of steel matting and stakes of broken rusting rifles. On the beach lay expended sufficient men and mechanisms for a small war. They were gone forever now. And yet, we could afford it. We could afford it because we were on. We had our toehold, and behold, behind us, there were such enormous replacements for the wreckage on the beach that you could hardly conceive of the sum total. Men and equipment were flowing from England in such a gigantic stream that it made the waste of the beachhead seem like nothing at all. Really, nothing at all. A few hundred yards back on the beach is a high bluff. Up there we had a tent hospital and a barbed wire enclosure for prisoners of war. From up there you could see far up and down the beach in a spectacular cow's nest view. Crow's nest view, excuse me. In a spectacular crow's nest view and far out to sea. And standing out there on that water beyond all the wreckages was the greatest armada man had ever seen. You simply could not believe the gigantic collection of ships that lay out there waiting to unload. Looking from the bluff, it lay thick and clear to the far horizon of the sea and beyond, and it spread out to the sides and was miles wide. Its utter enormity would, have, would move the hardest man. As I stood up there, I noticed a group of freshly taken German prisoners standing nearby. They had not yet been put in this prison cage. They were just standing there, a couple of doughboys leisurely guarding them with tommy guns. The prisoners, too, were looking out at the sea, the same bit of sea that a few months and years had been so safely empty before their gaze. Now they stood staring almost as if in a trance. They didn't say a word to each other. They didn't need to. The expression on their faces was something forever unforgettable. In it was the final horrified acceptance of their doom. If only all Germans could have had that rich experience of standing on that bluff and looking out across the water and seeing what their compatriots saw. Ernie Pyle. This type of reporting was more powerful than any sort of newsreel. Obviously, there was no social media at the time. There wasn't TV. There was radio. And Americans were very much focused on the realities of war. War had settled in throughout the country in a real way. And pretty much everybody had touched it. There was a united effort across the country to grow food to offset the demands that were being taken to feed the troops overseas. There was a harsh acceptance of the cost of war as we lost thousands and thousands of young men. Households were literally touched and Memories of what was became pictures and maybe an award or a letter from the president or the, war, or the Department of War. Pyle's work was enormous and its effect and what it was doing for a nation because it was bringing people in words to the place where film couldn't and where radio couldn't, but his words resonated as people read them as he creates this picture of war, always using a juxtaposition of words that almost shouldn't be placed where they should be, positive words to reflect negative things. And he was legend for it because he was able to bring to life something that people don't really want to face. Ernie Pyle was a real inspiration to me when I went to Afghanistan because what he was focused on was the real view through the eyes of the soldier. It wasn't the eyes of the hope of the commander or the eyes of a strategic view of the life. 
It wasn't trying to link conspiracy theories to explain this or that. It was visceral. It was on the ground. It was dirty. It was real. And it's something even today that in all of this noise and confusion between our media and the headlines and the research that is done, we tend to forget, not just tend to, we do it way too much, we forget the real story of the daily patriot, of the daily American, of the daily citizen of any other nation. We see clips of footages of people protesting, or we see somebody damaged by the vax, or we hear a lot of clips about perspectives on things and about the the controlling of the elite and the ridiculous narratives that come out of our capital. Keeping in mind that at this time in in our history, Washington, D.C. wasn't perceived as the evil of the world. It wasn't perceived as the evil of its own people. That our soldiers were out legitimately fighting an enemy that the nation was united behind, though it took time because the United States was not quick to go to war. And it's easy for us now to go backwards in time in our history and dissect these wars, to talk about, for example, what did Roosevelt know when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor? Was it a setup to draw us into war? What's the relationship between corporate America and the Nazi regime? These are things that are real. IBM providing the data processing capability to run Auschwitz camps. These were real. These are real issues to deal with. But in this war at that time, none of that was clear. So there's a couple of lessons in that that are worthy of remembering. One is that the blind obedience to war, to jump to war for the sake of something that was coming at us, which was fanned by the flames of media, was something that the original effort of the United States was probably correctly positioned. Most of the United States was not in favor of World War II, and they didn't feel at all compelled to get involved in Europeans' mess. They felt, most Americans felt at the time, that the war in Europe was Europe's to solve, not ours to get involved with. And I think that was probably correct. There was a massive propaganda campaign to swing Americans into the war, and of course the striking of Pearl Harbor, which is why many people feel that it may have been organized and planned, drew us into that war. But then Americans did what they do best when they're motivated. And they took on both as if to step into the place and say, okay, if you want to bring us into the war, now we're going to fix it our way. And this, there's one thing that comes out of World War II. It was just that. That all the other things put aside besides Operation Paperclip and all these other things that were going on with intelligence services post-war. In the middle of the war, what defined America for the world was its focus to win at any cost. Unrestricted warfare. War was not political. You had people that were running as captains in the army that weren't career officers at all. Rather, they were people that had been recruited. They had been accelerated into officer ranks because of their education And they did the job appropriately. A great testimony to that if you've ever seen the film. If you have not, I'd highly recommend you watch it. One of the great, great films of all time in war is Saving Private Ryan. Beautifully done and very accurate. And I'm speaking from a person who has told the story of war behind the camera. It's a passionate and very real story that gets into the heart of the soldier. Ernie Pyle was able to do that. And so I use him as a benchmark even today because as we do these stories every day and it's a lot of it is news-focused and perspective-focused and faith-focused, there is still the human interest piece that is lacking too often. And that's what Ernie was grabbing. And he was grabbing it in a significant way to awaken a nation to the visceralness of war. We're still having a hard time struggling with where we are. We want to we want to get mad at somebody. We want to be angry at somebody and we want to have a war against somebody. And I'm going to say to you that's exactly as we should be, but we just haven't found our target yet. I have no problem talking about a righteous vindication for what has become. Unfortunately, we're cast into a separate role. 
unlike World War II, where people could be sent overseas and you could sign up or you could be recruited, or someone like Ernie Pyle who could find a commission to go overseas and tell the stories of war, we don't have those battlefronts now. In fact, when Ernie Pyle first went over to London, from what had been reported, he was expecting to find London to be a burning heap of cinders. What he discovered when he got to London, when he first went overseas, was that London was actually a very busy, very active city without a lot of issues going on. So obviously there was a media distortion going on there to try to portray that and paint that in such a way that would draw us deeper into the war. You can probably thank Churchill for that because he was doing everything he could to try to rope us into his war. And that's kind of where good journalism falls because Pyle didn't get into the politics of war. He got into the reality of the war's consequence and he got into the human aspect of what war actually cost. And therein is yet another thing to remember. Um, and I'm number one at this. We have declared, we have looked at this war that we're in, in terms of defending a right and drawing the battle lines along our choice, which has been unfortunately had to be built between American citizens through this right to take an injection. But there's a lot of casualty that's happening all around us that has nothing to do even with death, though there's plenty of that. We don't have the, we're not seeing the real casualty of what this war has done. The casualty of turning brother against brother, family member against family member, and really getting into the human interest side of that to understand it, because this is what Ernie Pyle did really well. It's a different type of war we're in because it's an informational war, obviously. And so we don't see the visceral aspects of what the damage is. Pyle's able to walk a beach, as he did in this piece. And he's able to see the very real, very honest consequence of the waste of war. He's able to see the twisted wreckage the bodies that are floating in the river or in the ocean. He's able to see the displaced equipment on the beach and able to see the soldiers that are still alive camping out and sleeping. And as is evidence in the beginning of that piece, they're even sleeping amongst the dead. Those are very visceral images. But what does this war look like for us these days? We fight a war, it's a silent war. We fight it not alongside brother by brother, but we fight it with our strength and faith, many times alone in our corners around the world. We fight it having to hold on to something that's not physical, but rather spiritual. And we're having to trust in something greater than what's before us. And war, in a sense, is easier to fight than this war we are fighting now. Because as destructive as Normandy was and other battles where there's literally carnage, I will tell you that there's a satisfaction in knowing that who still stands has the right to pull the trigger to seek vengeance for who was killed. That may sound dark to you, but that's the realness of war. Unfortunately, in this type of war, those types of actions are not able to be made. We have to make calculated moves and tempered moves as we're trying to balance this idea of taking a reaction to somebody. We are being bound by laws that are not designed to support us, but rather support an institution that's turned against us. And at the same time, we're trying to balance all of that with our faith and at what point we flip tables and at what point we pray. It creates a heavy burden on the individual. It demands a great deal of discernment, but there is no single answer to what that outcome would be. The question I ask myself every day is, have we waited too long? 
to respond? Were we, should we have responded sooner? Should we have taken action to seize back certain elements in our counties or our cities or even our, our, our states? At what point do we draw the line when it becomes acceptable to pick up arms against a tyranny that's already killing millions? At what point does it become acceptable to take another life after a young child has been driven to the point of believing it's okay to mutilate themselves with a gender flip that will destroy them for the rest of their lives? Because this is starting to get into the space of Auschwitz and the camps where they did this to people. The difference is, like everything else in this war, they've manipulated the narrative to such a degree and so effectively on a broad spectrum of conflict and on the, on the extent of the battlefield that they aren't doing anything. They're getting people to do it to themselves. That's the sort of insidious war we fight that I don't know how that would, would be reported. But it's one that I think that is a challenge, and I'm taking it to myself as I'm reminded tonight. It has to be done at least once in a while. There has to be the attempt to write the op-eds and to write the perspective pieces and to write the human interest pieces that put forward the idea of what this war's toll is really about. It's easy to find the pieces of talking about the damage of a vaccine. I get it, and I'm not minimizing it. But what about the person that's left in the elderly home that has no one to talk to? Not because they're sick, but because maybe their family just is afraid to go anywhere or doesn't find it important to worry about them anymore because they're trying to put their life back together and this elderly person's left all alone. No one to talk to, no family, only to die and wither alone. See, the one thing about soldiers that you'll learn if you've been one or if you've ever experienced a group with them, you see soldiers build a bond. And the great thing about being a journalist like Ernie Pyle was or when I was embedded with them is I became one of them. Not in, in the, it's in a different sense because they, their stories are important to them. They had someone to tell their stories to that they could trust. And as they begin to trust you, which was my entire intent, because my intent was not to do anything but to tell their story, as Ernie Pyle sought to do. Telling their story, which never gets told. And see, that's what, that's what kind of haunts me now, is we have so many people that are out here whose stories need to be told. It's not in the headline news, and it's not in the fancy stuff that most Patriot accounts focus on trying to figure out the next step of the plan, trying to figure out whether Biden's a clone or not a clone, trying to figure out whether Kamala Harris is going to be the next in line if they bump out Biden, trying to figure out what's what's going on with Klaus Schwab and Soros because Soros didn't show up at the web, the WEF conference. That's just noise. And it's the type of noise that ultimately becomes fun and it becomes energetic and it becomes mind puzzles that people like to play with that lead us to nowhere. The truth is usually a lot more boring than the fictions that we write. What Pyle proved to us again and again in journalism is that the true story of the human interest aspect was far more interesting than anything that we could write. And so there's the question. And one of the reasons I love doing interviews the way I do is because it's someone telling their story. That's why I do long-form interviews. I don't do short interviews. I don't do high-pressure, high-speed interviews. I like to give the interview an hour, or if it's two hours, we break it into two shows, because this, these people that we're talking to have a story to tell. And it's how we grow, because literally stories are what define us. A nation was defined by Ernie Pyle. His columns shaped an entire generation. He gave people a personal and very real human touch to the war. It wasn't easy to read. and It wasn't always easy to digest, but it was real because it was from the soldier's perspective. Today, he'd be shut down. He'd be called a racist. He'd be called a misogynist. He'd be called something. Because this type of reporting, if we were actually in a war, would be considered to be only giving the perspective of those heathens that so dared to go into conflict. 
These are the same type of stories that have made the statues that we are now tearing down. These are the same type of stories that are in the, in the heart of what our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights is about. These are the same type of stories that are at the core of the story of the legends that come out of the Civil War, the American Indian War, or in our, on our rise of industry. They're the stories that make America. They're the human interest stories. But Pyle captured a moment in time in a war, what was supposed to be the war to end all wars, which obviously it wasn't. And he became part of soldiers to tell what their eyes were seeing because that generation ended up being a massive change for this country when it came back. And I think, I think he understood that. And I don't think there's any, any question because what he was seeing, they were experiencing. And what he was documenting was their lives through these most difficult times. And he was able to do as I've had the experience of doing, which is to take a step back just slightly from the intensity of conflict to focus on the story, not the killing. These are the sorts of stories that should be taught in, to every child. Ernie Pyle should be on the top of the list for every homeschooling group because it's what gives us this visceral touch to what war is really like. It gives us a pause when we want to so quickly pick up a gun and go hunt. And I don't mean hunting animals. But again, I ask that question daily. What are the stories of this time that we're missing? What about the person that loses a family member, a daughter, a son? What's that story look like in this time? Do they care about Biden being a double or not? Are they focused on the cost of groceries? I don't have these answers, but I'm saying that the lens of how a person exists after they lose somebody in their life changes pretty radically. This is part of us as a nation growing up. And as citizen journalists, as we're supposed to be, this great army of digital soldiers, I would say to a large degree, we haven't gone very far. Research-wise, there's a lot of that out there. Storytelling-wise, very little. And human interest storytelling, even less. And yet without the human interest part, without the interest in knowing who somebody is and what their life is like, we really don't know who we are. As America, we're still trying to figure that question out. And I'd say at the rest of the world, it's pretty much the same thing. Europe is confused where it sits in the world, and it's not saying that they don't understand how to protest. They do a better job than we do. But the thing is that they're doing the same cycles of events that they've done forever. What is it that we as humanity have to start doing to waking up that deep narrative of, to realize who we are and what our real stories are? Because so much of what we're living right now are the stories that are being shaped by them, them being the puppet masters of the world. You know what's real about Bernie Pyle? You know what's real about the film stories that I did and the writing stories I did? It's because there's nobody there pulling my strings. And there was nobody pulling his. What he saw, what he touched, what he walked was real before him. It was a real visceral story. And that's what we need more of now. We need to get down to the household, down to the communities. We need to be understanding the sacrifice, just stories of sacrifice alone of people that have given their entire lives to this fight. It's because I had an amazing talk today, and I'm really blessed because he's going to come on the show next week, and it's, it'll be good for everybody in Bard's Nation because this is somebody I've worked with, somebody I, am, I consider to be one of my closest friends. He's a legend. He's a legend in the special operations community. He was on the ground in Somalia. I've mentioned him before. He's coming on the show next week. I'm super excited about it. And we're just going to talk about things about like subterranean warfare. And we're going to talk about cartels that he's fought and so forth. But they're real stories. And as we were talking today and just kind of going through this, it just really struck me of just how we, there's so much about our lives that we're just kind of washing over. 
And even for him, he's taken a pretty big pivot because he started to look down home to what's important to him, which is his grandson in this time and asking the question of for all the fighting we've done, where are we going? And we're not going to really understand that until we start to hear the stories of who we are and understand what we are, because this government is not what it was or what we thought it was. And the idle hopes of people throwing up flares and celebrations of the plan and there's this going on and that going on, it's interesting, but it lacks the tangible and the real because everything that we can be, and I do this every day, just so I'm clear, every day I look at details, every day I start to look at this intelligence framework that I've built over the last five, six years, what I'd call the cultural intelligence map that is constantly morphing because of new information and a change here and a change there. And every single day that I go through that process, I'm asking myself a simple question. What within that is tangible and real? And what within that is projection and interpretation? And the only thing that ends up being tangible and real is our personal stories, our stories, your story, my story. They're all important because they're the true fabric of what this war is about. So when you think about this period of time, ask yourself a question. What will you, how will you talk about this era of conflict to your grandchildren? Because at some point they're going to want to know, were you in the great war of the great awakening? And it's not like we have to paint a heroic story, but what is that story? What was the War of the Great Awakening, Grandma or Grandpa? What was it like? You see, Ernie Pyle understood that. He didn't give some flowery garbage. Oh, it was a great fight against the evil empires. Ernie Pyle's story would be something more like what he wrote. Well, the great war, the war to end all wars, he'd probably say something like this. For a mile or so out from the beach, there were scores of tanks and trucks and boats that you could no longer see if they were at the bottom of the, because they were at the bottom of the water, swamped by overloading and or hit by shells or sunk by mines, and most of those crews were lost. And we were able to sacrifice because we could sacrifice and we were willing to sacrifice. But the sad part is that what the sacrifice to come for the Germans had not yet been realized, except for a handful of young, new prisoners of war that looked out across the sea and realized their end was nigh. And yet they couldn't express that to anybody home. We've all been changed by this war. And we've been changed radically. And it's a story that we have to learn to share of how it's changed us and the real challenges that we all faced, the stresses it put on marriages, the divisions between families, the very real pain that we carried, and how we as a nation, hopefully that story will write, is how we as a nation rose up above it. Not because of politicians, not because of the worship of a president, because we, the people, were able to overcome. And not simply because we can pass it off and say faith. Because the truth of the matter is that our faith, while strong, must have wheels and traction on the ground. And that becomes the actions that we do in our relationship with God to get through this and to become stronger and active in pushing back on the enemy. On April 17, 1945, Ernie Pyle came ashore with the U.S. Army's 305th Infantry Regiment, 77th Infantry Division, onto the shore of Lashima, a small island northwest of Okinawa that Allied forces had captured but had not yet cleared of enemy soldiers. The following day, after local enemy opposition had supposedly been neutralized, Pyle was traveling by jeep with Lieutenant Colonel Joseph B. Coolidge, the commanding officer of the 305th, and three additional officers toward Coolidge's new command, 
when the vehicle came under fire from a Japanese machine gun. The men immediately took cover in a nearby ditch. Quote, a little later, Pyle and I raised up and took a look around, Coolidge reported. Another burst hit the road over our heads, he continued, and I looked at Ernie and saw he had been hit. A machine gun bullet had entered Pyle's left temple just under his helmet, killing him instantly. Pyle was buried wearing his helmet among the other battle casualties on Lashima between an infantry private and a combat engineer. In tribute to their friend, the men of the 77th Infantry Division erected a monument that still stands on that site of his death to, to this day. Its inscription reads, At this spot, the 77th Infantry Division lost a buddy, Ernie Pyle, 18 April, 1945. Echoing the sentiment of the men serving in the Pacific Theater, General Eisenhower said, the GIs in Europe, and that means all of us, have lost one of our best and most understanding friends. This is a um, American hero that became a hero because he told the truth, and he told the truth through story and narrative through his words. He didn't get tangled up in the politics. He stayed focused on the most important aspect of any conflict, the soldier. Not in this writing, but in other parts. It took a while to recover Pyle's body because of the intensity of the enemy fire, but the soldiers stayed there under fire until they could finally get him out. They didn't leave him behind. He was one of them. Patriots, it's really, these type of stories obviously for me hit home because I've walked Pyle's path in my own way. But we're all walking this path today in a war that's consumed us all. In this time, we have to stay focused on the important pieces. And the importance of that is us, the people. It's not of the politicians. It's not the gameplay. It's not the puppeteering. It's not the ridiculous policies, the threat of trying to make us eat bugs, whatever other garbage, because none of that even matters or even has an impact. What matters is coming home alive. And coming home alive with all the values that you have, knowing that in the end you will be changed. Because war does that. But in the prayers that you will be changed in a way that brings us closer as a nation to God and closer as a nation to one another. To the credit of Ernie Pyle, his mission accomplished much of that. Let's pray. Father God, just begin today just with a deep prayer of thank you for the the personality and the person that Ernie Pyle was in our nation's history. It reminds us of the power of the storytelling and the power of the word and the power of the human factor in war. In this craziness of all we've been through and the insanity of the puppeteering and the manipulation and the attempt to constantly destroy us, the one asset that we have that's greater than any in the world, any in the universe, is the aspect of unity in ourselves, between ourselves, and in the body of Christ. Tonight's prayer is simple. Just a prayer for unity and strength. A prayer that we can find in our hearts to realize the importance of each other. A reminder that as you fight in war, each personality is different. Not everybody gets along. Each personality has its own connections back home to a root that makes them who they are. But the strength in victory in war comes through the unity of, of working together. 
and the understanding that sacrifice, no matter how great, doesn't change the focus of mission and the achieving and seeking of victory. In the passions that Ernie Pyle wrote, in the words that he shared, he brought all of that to life. That there is such a thing as pure evil. That pure evil needs to be destroyed. The sacrifices are many and real and visceral. But in the end, it's those that are committed to the greater victory, to the greater walk, to the greater understanding of who they are, that in the end will claim the prize of victory for all. Thank you, Father, for all you give. Thank you for the sacrifices made. And we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Patriots, hope you all have a very blessed Saturday. Take some time and spend some time with Father. Spend some time in the world. Spend some time with one another. This war is a digital war only in so far as that's where the battlefield is. But this war's real cost and real growth sits within the human, the humans that we are. It's real. Take some time to refresh and realize all that Father has given us because he's given us a great deal. And most importantly, he's given us us, this community and many others. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We are at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you Sunday night. For peace be still. Until then, or until the next time, God bless. Good night. Thank you. And out for now. Oh, I want to feel something. I just want to breathe again Dive into the deepest end Oh, I want to feel something Let me get back in my body Oh,